Let's start with the good news. And it really is good news. We have what it takes to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees and to cut our emissions in half by 2030. And now, the not so good news. We still aren't on track to make that change happen, despite decades of warnings from scientists. More than 15,000 scientists are sounding an alarm about climate change. They call it a warning to humanity. This is the fifth episode of Climate Action Now, a podcast about climate change and solutions, created by the energy company Orsted, ranked the most sustainable company in the world. This is a series where we investigate what it takes to transform our production and use of energy from black to green in order to reach our climate goals and protect our shared home, planet Earth. Remember, you can find and listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify and Google and most of the other podcast directories. And please do remember to subscribe and don't forget to visit orsted.com forward slash act now for more insights and advice on what you can do to support the green transformation. In the first four episodes, we heard that in order to stop global warming at 1.5 degrees, we need to systemically change the way we produce and use energy. This is because 73% of all global emissions come from energy. We also learned that we have the technological solutions that we need to make this transition happen. This is what we learned in the last episode when we spoke to Sven Teske, Research Director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology in Sydney. We do have technologies available to actually phase out uh, carbon emission in our energy system. The problem we have here is a political problem and not a technical problem. So what are the challenges and how do we overcome them in time to reach our climate goals of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, let alone 2 degrees? Those are the questions we'll be asking in this episode. My name is Peter Stannis, and I'm your host. 2050 is getting closer, and the window for for keeping the human-caused uh, uh, global warming to within two degrees is rapidly closing. So we need to change our we need to change our governance. We need to change our economic system, and we need to change our habits. This is Catherine Richardson. She's head of the Sustainability Science Centre at the University of Copenhagen. And she's a UN-appointed expert who you might remember from episode two of this series. Besides Richardson, we also talked to the president and CEO of the World Resources Institute in Washington, D.C., Dr. Andrew Steer. The Institute is perhaps one of the most renowned research organisations on climate and energy in the world. Steer says that it will take a collective effort to reach our climate goals of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees and cutting our emissions in half by 2030. Governments are absolutely central, but in and of themselves, they can't solve the problem either. We need a coalition, what we call collective action, between governments, private corporations, the financial sector, um, uh, civil society and science to uh, together uh, encourage each other. Governments are not willing to be bold unless they think their corporations are going to find that okay. They're not willing to be bold unless their citizens are telling them to do it. It's when citizens and corporations tell the governments, 
please give us more clarity over the longer term. And then the financial sector says, we're willing to finance things in a different way, that you then are going to get that kind of ambition. Both Andrew Steer and Catherine Richardson agree that action is needed on many levels, all the way from our policymakers to businesses, investors, energy companies, and you and me, all the individuals around the globe. In this episode, we take a look at each of these important stakeholders in the global green transition. We look at the barriers in their way and explore what they should do in order to get around them. Let's start with the energy companies. As you might recall from episode three, the energy sector is the largest emitter of carbon dioxide. But they can also play a key role in fighting climate change by investing in a green transition and sustainable technological solutions. So said Dolph Gielin from the International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA, in episode three. Well, the power sector is, is especially important because there are very significant potentials that can be uh, mobilized in the coming 10, 20 years. So uh, if there is one sector we should uh, start, then it's the power sector. Besides going from black to green energy by building out renewables and phasing out coal-fired power plants more quickly, energy companies also have to be innovative and scale new technologies. Most of all, energy companies have to be able to change, says Andrew Steer. Energy companies um, uh, need to be extremely nimble. Uh, They need to stay on the cutting edge of technology and they need to drive that technology forward. Some of them have a problem in that their shareholders purchase their shares believing that they were one kind of company. And some of those shareholders are not particularly keen that the company becomes um, a revolutionary and changes very quickly. So, for example, the oil and gas industry has this problem. In some leadership positions in oil and gas, they would like to move much more quickly, but their shareholders are telling them they shouldn't. So that's just one of the many barriers. Catherine Richardson thinks that energy companies are in a very good position to take action on the climate crisis. Unless these energy companies are directly um, dependent on on fossil fuels, then I, I don't see a problem for energy companies. Quite the contrary, most energy companies are relatively large and in a position to be able to make some some transition. So we see uh, someone like Rostel, who was Dong, I mean, deliberately getting out of fossil fuels at a time when, when they, they saw that this was going to have to happen. As we heard in previous episodes, Orsted has set carbon reduction targets that are aligned with science. And that's because the company wants to do their share of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. The company has also set a goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2025. Here's CEO Henrik Paulsen explaining how they're going to do it. The way we're going to do it is fundamentally by doing more of what we have been doing. So we're going to continue the build out uh, of renewable uh, energy. Uh, We'll continue to phase out uh, our consumption of coal. Uh, We plan to end the consumption of coal entirely uh, by 2023. Orsted will be the first big energy company to reach carbon neutrality. I feel it's the right ambition uh, for us that we are a leader in this field. 
uh, and I uh, believe by committing to carbon neutrality in 2024, uh, we will remain on the front curve. And I do believe it is our role to help lead uh, this industry uh, in this journey towards uh, an entirely green uh, energy system. Orsted has also decided that their supply chain needs to be carbon neutral by 2040. With the 2040 target, Orsted wants to help drive the necessary innovation forward that's needed to mature the green technologies in the industries that supply to them. And setting targets that are aligned with science is crucial, not only for energy companies, but for everybody, says Richardson. It is absolutely essential that we have reduction target goals, both for countries and for companies. All evidence says that if we're going to have the slightest chance globally of being able to stay within a 1.5 degree human-caused global warming, then globally we have to reduce between 2020 and 2030 by 55% our emissions. So, so I think it's absolutely critical that we make these targets and that we use our energy to try and achieve them. Andrew Steer also points to Orsted as an example of an energy company that's transitioning in alignment with science. Other energy companies have to follow that same trajectory of transparency and clarity. Well, energy companies can be crystal clear as to the direction of travel. So a company like Orsted, for example, has been extremely clear to its bondholders, its shareholders, its employees, its customers, the direction it's going in. It is going to become a company that helps us get to climate change that limits warming to less than 1.5 degrees. Um, and, And with that, with a clear roadmap, it is quite possible because then whether it's the shareholders or or any other stakeholder group, they know where you're going. Another important stakeholder in our global green transition are businesses in general. In order for companies to fight climate change and participate in reaching our climate goals, they have to buy green power and reduce emissions from production as well as throughout their supply chain. All that to cut emissions sufficiently to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. Catherine Richardson argues that it's actually easier for the larger companies than for the small ones. The biggest barrier for businesses and climate action is money and access to the funds to make a transition. You see the really big organizations, really big companies, they are doing it because they know they have to in order to be able to have a market in 2040. But the smaller companies have a harder time finding the the capital to be able to invest in the in the transition and the infrastructure necessary to do the transition. So even if they want to, they're not in a position to be able to do it. Companies need to look at every level of their business and push for green action everywhere while asking themselves some hard questions, says Steer. So where are we getting our energy from? Are we using our buying muscle to persuade utilities to provide us with renewable energy rather than with old-fashioned fossil fuel energy? Then it needs to look at the entire way it manages its logistics. And there are sort of many, many different ways that a company can lower its emissions. Um, And it needs to regard this as something that's linked to the very core of its business. This is not some sort of extra thing that you ask the environmental manager to do. This is something which is at the core of becoming uh, tomorrow's efficient company. Because as you cut down on 
carbon emissions, you become more efficient. Carbon emissions are actually a very good proxy for economic inefficiency. And when you start thinking like that, then this isn't just the environmental department that does it. Andrew Steer adds that a positive sign in the business world right now is just how many companies are aligning their carbon emission targets with what science has stated is needed. As you might recall from episode two of this series, the science-based target initiative has gotten hundreds of companies to align their production with science. Now are nearly 800 major global companies that are committed in a transparent way to decarbonize their entire value chains. And 200 of those companies have said 1.5 degrees is the maximum warming. And this is a very exciting development because what it then means is you can lay out your path and everybody understands where you're going. Um, and that gets everybody on board. Um, and it's exciting in the sense that also it's, it makes these companies more attractive to their workers, uh, to their customers and so on. Another important stakeholder in the global green transition are policymakers around the world. These are the folks shaping society and climate laws everywhere, the people who should be aligning policies with what's required by science to limit temperature increase to 1.5 degrees. According to Catherine Richardson, one of the biggest barriers in the way of policymakers is the fact that they're elected for a short number of years. Fighting climate change needs long-term political investments and goals. And in contrast to tax regulations, for example, voters don't immediately see the outcome of increased political action on climate change. The biggest barriers for policymakers in terms of, of climate action have to do with public support and the fact that they are elected in only for a limited amount of time. Despite that, policymakers have increasingly come to terms with their responsibility and the benefits of investing in a green future, says Andrew Steer. Policymakers um, uh, are slowly um, beginning to understand a new economic and social narrative. Ten years ago, we believed that addressing climate change was a good thing to do, but it was going to cost you in terms of jobs, in terms of economic growth, in terms of investment. We now know that that is fundamentally false. There is a new economics of the 21st century, and it basically says that if you take smart action on climate change, you will become economically more efficient, you will drive new technologies, you will provide long-term consistency of policy, and you will prevent really bad things happening. All of those together lead more growth, more investment, more technology, more and better jobs. Policymakers should not be afraid of setting bold goals and making ambitious decarbonisation plans that are aligned with what science says, according to Steer. This includes speeding up the phase-out of coal-fired power plants while accelerating the build-out of green energy. At the same time, it's necessary to pursue faster green electrification. This will help to decarbonise areas such as transport, the construction and heating and cooling of buildings, and also in industry. Furthermore, policymakers need to introduce policies that boost energy efficiency across all sectors. Energy efficiency just means getting the most out of the energy that we produce and use. Andrew Steer mentions the former American president, John F. Kennedy, and his ambition to go to the moon as a great comparison of setting a bold goal. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. 
not because they are easy, but because they are hard. It might seem impossible when the goal is set, but just like with the moon, we have what it takes to make this new world happen. But if you set that kind of bold goal, then you can get to the right place. And a growing number of governments are starting to get there now. So, for example, 108 countries have now said they are going to raise the ambition of their climate commitments under the Paris deal. That's a lot of countries. Now, sadly, those are generally the smaller countries. So those 108 countries actually add up to only 15% of global emissions. And what we need to see is sort of the G20. This next crucial stakeholder used to be pretty quiet when it came to creating a world that runs on green energy. It's the people with money, the investors. And according to Catherine Richardson, they haven't historically been ready to change their ways. I think the biggest barrier for investors is the fact that many of them have their head in the sand. That uh, they have assumed that what worked in the past is going to work today. And they've missed the point that the world around them is changing. And it's changing in such a way that some of those investments that they have been getting high return on have now become risks, really big risks. And I think it's this realization of the changing world and the risks associated with it, which are the greatest barrier for for finance and investment. Andrew Steer agrees. Well, the financial sector overall has traditionally not been a friend of the green transition. The reason for that is that the financial sector tends to take a very short-term view And they tend to be conservative. They like to finance things that they know how to finance. And so, of course, they tend to finance the things they've been doing all the time, which tends to be the old-fashioned things. Andrew Steer is actually seeing some positive signs at the moment. A recent example is a letter that was published by Larry Fink. He's the founder and chief executive of BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, with nearly $7 trillion in investments. Every year, Fink releases a letter to the chief executives of the world's largest companies, which is always highly anticipated and closely watched. This year, in 2020, the letter stated that BlackRock would begin to exit certain investments that, quote, present a high sustainability-related risk, such as in coal producers. As he said to Bloomberg at Davos in January this year. Because climate change is now becoming an investment risk. And no differently as investors focus on yield curve or whatever forms of risk we have. Investors need to place their money in green energy and green projects. Investors also need to ask companies to reduce their emissions in line with what is required by science. At the same time, investors should ask for more transparency when it comes to emissions and push companies to integrate climate-related disclosure into their reporting. Larry Fink wants to encourage every company, not just energy companies, to rethink their carbon footprints. What we're now seeing is something quite remarkable, which is that for the first time, the financial sector, which prides itself in assessing risk well, now is recognising that actually one of the most serious risks Um, that is to be faced in the coming decade is climate change. And so from the risk side, you're seeing them change their behavior, but also on the opportunity side, because they're seeing there is actually an opportunity. Another important stakeholder who will need to take action in several ways are the citizens of the world, you and me. 
and it seems like a lot of people around the world have started to take action. Millions of young people and activists demanding action from their governments on the climate crisis. This is happening. I think most of us will know this particular individual who has made headlines around the world in the fight for systemic action on climate change. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground. It's 17-year-old Swedish activist Greta Thunberg. She's the symbol of a growing movement of people pleading their governments and international institutions for action on the climate crisis. That is also one of the most important things that individuals can do in order to push for systemic change, says Catherine Richardson. Urge the people in charge to make change on your behalf while also doing what is necessary on your end. Individuals can do two things. One, they can make their wishes known to their politicians. So, so never underestimate the power of of the vote and your voice in the political system. What we can also do is look inward and ask, what changes can I make to reduce emissions in my own life? I think it's wrong to to point fingers at people and say, "Listen, you shouldn't fly, or you shouldn't eat meat, or you should be a vegan, or whatever." I'm a, a, a Danish American, so I have citizenship both places, but it means I do go to the states once a year to see my family. I will fly, but. I can cut down other places in my resource use, and it, it, it's. Uh, I think it's contingent upon us all to to change our value systems. Andrew Steer sees ordinary citizens as playing a key role in the global green transition. What should citizens do? Be aware, um, understand uh, what's going on, um, choose your representatives carefully lobby and use your voice but number two clearly citizens can change their own behaviors again it's important that all of us are aware when we um, turn on the light switch do we know where the electricity is coming from do we know what kind of electricity is when we choose to travel in a certain way to work or to see our friends do we have an awareness of what goes on we citizens have to act in several ways if we are to meet our goals of reducing our emissions with 50% before 2030. Citizens have the central role in determining whether or not we succeed or fail in the battle against climate change. We're now seeing something that we haven't seen for 50 years, if ever, which is citizens led by youth in this uh, situation who are standing up and saying, we're not going to take this anymore. You are ruining our futures. Um, and so it's when citizens speak that governments listen. But it isn't always easy for people to change. I actually think it's uh, the reason it's so hard to act on is, is because we're removed from the effects of what we do. I mean, I think people, I think people, if they can see there's something in this for me, then they do do it. When it comes to taking action, Andrew Steer says that this is a very important year. Well, the, the climate meeting in Glasgow in November this year is uh, exceedingly important. Under the Paris deal, every five years, countries are supposed to come back and raise their level of ambition. Um, and so the level of ambition set in Paris, everybody knew it was not going to solve the problem. Um, it was the first effort. And the Paris deal will only work 
if ambition is raised. And so this meeting in 2020 is exceedingly important. If we are not able to get the vast majority of countries to become a lot more ambitious, then the Paris deal itself is in deep jeopardy, as is our fight against climate change. As we heard earlier, there are now 108 countries which have stated that they are willing to raise the level of their climate ambitions. That's good, but unfortunately they only amount to 15% of global emissions. So the big countries, um, the European, big European countries, Japan, China, India, Brazil and United States um, and countries like that have not yet stepped up. They have not indicated um, their own level of ambition um, uh, moving forward. And so that's what needs to happen now. So the World Resources Institute is working closely with those countries leading up to the COP climate summit in Glasgow. So we are devoting our efforts very intensively to work with some of these countries uh, to demonstrate the economics um, and the politics uh, that can be positive if you take really bold moves. Generally speaking, though, both Catherine Richardson and Andrew Steer feel hopeful about the current times. So I see massive hope in the younger generation. I see hope in in the speed at with which intentions are being are being brought forward. We need to see a little more action on those attentions before I feel we can feel we're home safe. But I absolutely haven't given up hope. Catherine Richardson and Andrew Steer feel especially hopeful about the impact of citizen movements and their call to action for the important role that they play in pushing the rest of the stakeholders in the global green transition. Um, I am most optimistic about um, citizen movements um, led initially in by, you know, Scandinavia, Europe, but now, quite frankly, it's a worldwide movement, incredibly exciting to see citizen movements um, starting to take root. And along with that, we're seeing the financial sector move in a way um, that we had not anticipated and the corporate sector. So those three coming together, they will nudge governments. That was it for these five episodes of Climate Action Now. We've covered a lot of ground. We learned that our global consumption and production of energy needs to rapidly transition from black to green energy. We've heard how to do that, and that we do have the technology we need in order to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. Now we have to act. You might be wondering what you can do in the fight against climate change. Well, a good place to start is Orsted's website, where you can find some practical advice. Go to orsted.com forward slash act now to learn how you can start acting. This podcast is created by Orsted, produced by Sophie Tholl, and my name is Peter Stannis.